And now, live from Atlanta, Georgia, everyone's social media friend, it's Deb Creer. Every week, Deb talks with the movers and shakers, the experts, the best of the best in social media, bringing you all of the latest tips, techniques, and trends for successfully using social media. In social media, there's only one constant, Deb Creer. Good morning, good morning, everyone. I am Deb Creer. I'm the socialite, and I am passionate about working with professionals to show them how to use social media as a tool to promote themselves and their businesses. And we're going to have a great program today because we're not going to focus quite so much on social media. Of course, we will work that in. But as you've uh, heard from me in the past, we do deviate on occasion when I have fabulous guests who can talk about other types of of business situations. And so joining me today is Chris Reimer. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Great. Well, we're going to have so much fun talking about this because we're going to talk about how to be happy. So before we go any further, let me read your bio, Chris. Chris is an award-winning communications strategist, a humanist, and a student of human interaction. I have cats. He has dogs, obviously. Chris founded Rizzo Tees, a t-shirt company headquartered in his basement. He went on to become possibly the only human alive who went from being a CPA and CFO to a marketing and communication strategist. He is a guest lecturer at Washington University and resides in St. Louis, Missouri with his wife and two daughters. You can find him on happyworkbook.com or say hi to him on Twitter, which is at Chris Reimer. And he actually responds back because social media is how I met Chris. So welcome again, Chris. Thank you. And my dog also says hello. And great, great. I, and it's quite possible he'll be done now, but you can just never know. I know. You know, the, that's always the, the – it's not a challenge. It's a delight, I like to say. When we have our home offices, my cats will wander in. They will say meow, and then they wander back out. You know, they're, they're our office assistants. Yes. So, yes. you know, it's, it's always fun to have them. So what we're going to talk about is Chris's new book. And as I mentioned, it's, it's about being happy. And the title of the book is called Happy Work, a business parable about the journey to teamwork, profit, and purpose. And Chris, I love this whole concept because I'm a huge Bob Berg fan, and I love that you are too, because parables, we can relate to them. You know, I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, oh, that happened to me. Oh, that happened. Oh, that happened to me. You know, and, and so first, tell us what was the concept and why did you decide to even write this book? Great question. So first of all, for anybody listening, please do get, among other Bob Berg books, The Go-Giver, which is one of the best business books I think I've ever read. It's the only business book that's ever made me cry. It was, yes. it was an inspiration I'm not afraid to admit that. The ending was just right. a little much for me. It was great. And, and, and he inspired and, me to turn my message delivery vehicle into a story instead of writing mm -hmm. nonfiction. So right. I had a story. I had a book that was about 60 to 70% written, a nonfiction business book about happiness and civility in the workplace and fulfillment at work. And mm -hmm. as you said, if, you know, if you were reading my book and – seeing things that happened to you in your past, 
I feel that that's very unfortunate, but un- but unfortunately, not too uncommon. Most people right. have had some sort of crappy job or previous experience that uh, has really sometimes scarred them and honestly mm-hmm. taken their self worth, uh, which we. We, we, so much of our self-worth is wrapped up in, in our mm-hmm. work and our employment, and they've, th- their self-worth has been twisted and you know, marred a little bit by things that they've gone through in their past. And so uh, that's probably the first reason that I wanted to write the book, because I dislike how it can change us as people and can cause us mm-hmm. to be unable to uh, be good spouses and good parents mm-hmm. and th- things mm-hmm. that seem – really, really, really important to me as opposed to work, which just kind of seems really important. Uh, right. I would I would say that the first reason, the inspiration for the book was probably my mother. And so a long time ago when I was a child and my brother who was five years younger than me, when we were you know, trying to figure out how the world works, we were asking mom and dad lots of why questions. Why this and why that? And mm-hmm. you know, that's how kids figure out how the world works and what everything means around them. And so we were talking to my mom about her job and she was properly reserved about what she was going through at work. She wasn't dishing the dirt as it were, but we mm-hmm. caught wind of the fact that she didn't like her job. Mm-hmm. And so we asked her, well, why don't you like your job? And she, mm-hmm. like I said, was a little bit evasive, which was probably a good thing. Uh, didn't really lay it out on the line for us. But, you know, then we said, okay, well, why don't you leave? Like, why don't you go find something else? And, of course, right. as children, we didn't really understand. She didn't go to college, so she mm-hmm. didn't have – she kind of lacked the mobility that, say, you or I might have uh, mm-hmm. or that so many of your listeners might have at this point. And she also just felt as though it were her responsibility, uh, perhaps a different generation. It was her responsibility to – to support us without fail. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, now like people maybe are a little bit more risk takers and things like that. There's just a lot more opportunity now than I think 30 to 35 years ago. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when my mom said, you know, I do this for you guys, um, my brother and I said, this is a wonderful sentiment. Thank you. But we still don't understand. And I think it was at that point when I couldn't compute in my head, when the when I couldn't solve the equation of mm-hmm. why someone would do something especially someone I love, that they didn't mm-hmm. enjoy. I think that was the beginning of me thinking about work and what work means to our life. I had no mm-hmm. job when I was my little grade schooler, but I think that's where it all began. Mm. Well, and, you know, especially that generation, I think, you know, in, and because my parents were the same way, they worked in many cases because they had to work. Um, you know, and, and I think if I had asked them, and, and it's funny because my mom is probably listening to this program, I think if I had asked them, do you like what you do, I would have gotten mixed emotions and, and mixed reactions. And now I will admit, my father absolutely loved his job. He worked for the Division of Wildlife in Colorado. So he was outside every day and he was dealing with animals and, you know, all sorts of things. But there were obviously things about his job that he didn't like. But, you know, and, and we're not saying that you have to like your job all the time, but it, it is kind of a generation thing that, you know, you, you, it didn't matter whether you liked your job or not because you had a mortgage to pay and you had mouths to feed and, you know, all of those things. And, and it's, I think we've definitely seen that shift 
And Bob, I think Bob Berg probably was one of the first people who in many ways started getting us to think about being happy with what we do. And part of that is, you know, that that really is what you cover in your book. It is. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been chatting with people a little bit about this as well, this generational thing that you mentioned. So on the flip mm-hmm. side of my mom, you know, well on the flip side is what, you know, we would generally refer to as the millennials. You know, and you hear a lot mm-hmm. of uh, people in positions of um, – power or supervision talking about millennials is that they have no idea what to do with them. Like these are, this Mm -hmm. is some young generation that just is so different and so flighty and at times relatively clueless. And I I have to say uh, in some of the readings that I've done, some really good articles online and just talking with young people, you know, if you were born after 1980, you grew up in a world that was much, much different than if you were born Mm -hmm. before 1980. So that older generation and they, the, that older generation, like my parents, they were very closely attached to the greatest generation, Pe- people mm-hmm. who had zero choice in life but to right. turn back the you know, oppressive regimes of Germany and Italy and Japan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then it was just like hunker down and get the job done. You know, if you were born mm-hmm. after 1980, you know a completely different world. You grew up with mm-hmm. school shootings and terrorism and things like this. So, you know, you're very interested at that age then in all of your activities, you're very interested in knowing that what you're doing is meaningful and making a contribution. And so mm-hmm. what I tell companies is that sounds really great from a company perspective. Let's find people who are interested in knowing that what they're doing is making a contribution. Now, you know, if you're like hiring for an assembly line worker, you might have to work a little bit extra hard to make sure they understand that mm-hmm. what they're doing is making a contribution. But having these young folks want to feel as though the time that they spend is going to really count towards something is actually mm-hmm. the start of making a more beautiful world, in my opinion. Right. You know, and and we see that in the workforce when you have somebody, and, and it doesn't matter what job they have. Um, I was at one of the big box stores a couple weeks ago, and the young man who waited on us was the nicest I mean, he was just incredible. And the funny thing is I walked out of there thinking he won't last because, you know, he almost was too nice for the position. And but I hate thinking that because wouldn't it be nice if they were all like that? You know, and 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 again, it doesn't matter, but it's you know where they work. But it's so interesting when you find people who are like that, you know, they truly like their job. And and I don't care if they're the CEO of a multi-gazillion dollar corporation or somebody that's waiting tables. you feel that from them. You know, you feel that they like their job and then you want to talk to them and chat with them and maybe go back and spend more money there, you know, which is obviously one of the the things that everybody likes to do. Yeah, but so that person at the big box store, you know, like in my head, I I presumed it was Home Depot. I have no idea if I was right. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, it's interesting. Like when you run into people like that, I like when people, you know, this might sound a little cheesy, but I like when people shine in their own way, you know. So Mm -hmm. like if he was to join... Home Depot or whatever store you happen to be in. I mean, it, short of owning stock, it's really not his place, uh, you know, and he doesn't own the joint. So right. really, what's in it for him? And mm-hmm. it's just an incorrect, you know, misplaced, misguided question to ask. So one mm-hmm. of the questions I've been getting, and it's it's not quite a difficult question anymore because I've received it a few times and had time to think about it. But the first time someone asked it in a public forum, I I was a little stumped. They said you know, this happy work stuff is all fine and dandy, but, you know, what can I do? You know, I don't run mm-hmm. the place. I'm sort of lower to middle level. You know, what can I do to change my workplace? And mm-hmm. I was a little stumped, you know, and of course, 
if you're lower to mid, no, you're not exactly driving the bus, but you're a passenger on the bus and you know, mm-hmm. you can influence what goes on in your immediate area and you can touch people in your own particular way, even right. if it's not like you know, the big decision to like open a new store or location or stuff like that, those aren't always mm-hmm. the most important decisions. You know, I was at it's funny, I went through the drive through at McDonald's yesterday and I really never eat at McDonald's, but I went through the McDonald's drive through yesterday morning and when I got to the speaker, you know, the person was like, Can I help you? And I, and, no, this is good. This gets good. This gets, this is actually gets better. So I was like, I ha- I ordered it, and when I drove up to the first window to pay, the person at the window was actually smiling. It just didn't come through in their mm-hmm. voice, and someone behind them was like mm-hmm. joking with them, and they were laughing, and it like it was it's so bizarrely brightened my day. I looked at them and I said, "You two aren't having fun, are you?" You know, and they just mm-hmm. laughed. They said, "We're trying," and I said, "You know what? That's all you can do." And yeah. McDonald's doesn't give two you know what's that they they're carrying mm-hmm. like that, but they can have pride in their own work. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. And it it might not make you want to go back to McDonald's today, but it it might make you think about it again. And, and, you know, of course, they they might not be there the next time, but it really does kind of rub off on us. You know, if if you've seen somebody that is enjoying their job, I do think, you know what, this this is a good place. I I would like to come back here again. And and I don't care what type of, of place it is. You know, and it's it's interesting because you know as I was reading your book as as I was mentioning I really did think Ugh, I I had a boss who threw things at me oh. who used bad language um, and it was funny it was it, he was he was not a small man he was probably well over three hundred pounds and very tall so he was this intimidating person and he used swear words like you know everybody else uses just regular language. <laughs> And it was my first job out of college. So, you know, here was this meek little thing. And, and, but I, you know, I was raised, I'm an only child, and I was raised with very good self-respect. Um, and he made the mistake of using, of calling me the B word once. And I marched my little self into his office, and I said, that was your one time. And he looked at me, and he'd calmed down by that point, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, Use that word again in reference to me, and I will own your company. And, you know, and, but the funny thing was, it, I mean, he, he took it to heart. He never, you know, never did anything like that again. But at the same point, that kind of comes through in your book, too, that we have to respect ourselves. Um, you know, as I was reading your book, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, one of the characters, and we don't want to give it away because we're going to make sure that people read the book, is that person needed to stand up for themselves or, you know, or get out, um, yeah. you know, and, and part of the premise in the book is you can't always get out, you know, and, and, and it comes back to, as we were saying earlier about, you know, other generations, they didn't feel that they could change. So, you know, we're not being Pollyanna. We're not saying, well, hey, if you don't like it, quit because you can't always. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it was interesting because the, the premise of the book is that it, the company is failing. And this this gentleman is hired to to be the turnaround person. And, of course, he is this numbers person, which I'm assuming comes from your CPA and your CFO background. And, you know, and and so he is this numbers person. And and that's all he's concerned about. Why are they losing money? And through the course of of your story, the gentleman finds out that it's not about the money. It, It is about 
the respect that people have for each other, the fact that they feel good working there, that when they go home, they feel good. And I think that is what is so powerful about your story is we really all can relate to it because if we haven't had the boss who threw things at us or called us names, we've we've all been in some situations where it just wasn't the, the best thing. And I love how you kind of work that through your book so that we can really relate to it. Yeah, thank you for the for the, for the kind words and thanks for reading the book obviously as well. You know, <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, I'm hoping that you know, people will uh have a greater respect for each other, a little bit more empathy for each other and mm-hmm. then then because of that be ready to make a greater contribution to the companies they work at and the families that they are a part of. Something you said earlier that I thought was interesting when you used the term uh you know, like this happiness or like seeing two people being jovial at McDonald's, how that little sort of mm-hmm. stuff can, you know, rub off on uh, on someone else. You know, it's like that. I, I was joking. I didn't put it into the boat, but I considered. You know, it's like one big Liberty Mutual commercial. Have you ever seen that commercial mm-hmm. where like yeah. someone sees someone do something good, and then that inspires them to mm-hmm. do something good? I, right. I have to admit, I, I kind of like those ads, and they make mm-hmm. me feel like there's like some hope in the world. You know, and mm-hmm. as an aside, I wanted to mention too that I I did have bad language sprinkled throughout my book, and my publisher gently advised me to remove it and so <laughs> there were times when people say things and they really should in their head there's in my head they're saying something a lot worse but yes uh, maybe maybe the second edition or maybe we can have an after dark version or something after mm-hmm. uh after it gets successful but you know that that's something too i mentioned in the book you know there's i feel like you know something that we can all probably agree with is that negativity and i hate to say this but negativity can be so much more powerful than positivity. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I always think of life events as like pellets that you hold in your hand. And mm-hmm. negative pellets, unfortunately, just weigh more than positive pellets. Right. They just they're, do. They're heavier. I, they're I thoroughly, more dense. I thoroughly dislike that about mm-hmm. us. I like most things about us, humanity, but that's one thing that I thoroughly dislike. And so uh, in the book, there's this little section where – it actually talks about a real thing that I read in the New York Times. It was about uh, Billy Joel, the famous singer. You know, mm-hmm. he's a pretty successful guy. He's had right. some of the most iconic music in the last hundred years. He tours. Uh, he was once married to Christy Brinkley, who is a pretty amazing woman, from what I was mm-hmm. able to tell as a, as a, as a young man, uh, you know, looking at her and being jealous uh, of him. And, and I'm thinking to myself, when, when in this New York Times article, he's talked about how one or two bad reviews of his concert, his next CD, whatever the case may be, would really get him down. So right. it didn't matter how many adoring fans would show up to the arena. It didn't matter how many people fawned over him and asked for his autograph. It did not matter how much uh, fan mail he got. It didn't matter mm-hmm. how he was able to snap two fingers and Christy Brinkley was at his side. One or two bad reviews would get him down. I'm thinking to myself, what does this man have to worry about? Mm-hmm. What, you know, Seth Godin is another one. He's written 17 business books and probably sold 1 million plus copies. And mm-hmm. Seth is nearly universally beloved. I mean, he's at 17 books. I'm at one. He's like an incredibly amazing and gifted orator and a wonderful writer and an inspiration to me. Seth cannot read his one-star reviews on Amazon. He has said so previously. He said it gets him down. He doesn't allow comments on his blog because he doesn't want to feel the negativity weighing on him. And I was reading some articles recently were so interesting. They said that 
uh, when you're when you're negative, when you have a lot of negativity in your heart and you're pushing negativity out, there's this part of your brain. I think it, you pronounce it the hippocampus. Is where uh, it's where problem solving takes place, and you actually damage uh, neural connections in that area of the brain when you, when you're negative to to somebody mm-hmm. or when you're negative about life. And then the kicker was, if other people are being negative and you just happen to be listening, guess what happens? Uh, just right. about the same thing. It's like it's mm-hmm. just like secondhand smoke. I can actually. I can harm I can harm other people with my negativity at work. And at work, we're usually charged with solving problems. So mm-hmm. you don't want the problem-solving part of your brain to be damaged in any way. This is what happens at work. And so when if there's a question to be asked during this interview, like what's the return on investment, the ROI of mm-hmm. all of this, is keeping people on top of their game so that they can solve the problems of your business. Right. You know, and, and, and you mentioned that. It's funny. I actually have this page brought up on my I, – I read your book on my iPad. So I, I have this page brought up that is about the ROI of happiness at work. And you, you say, you know, unhappiness yields poor work performance, which yields lower productivity and lower profits, which yields even more unhappiness. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's awful. There's your ROI of happiness at work. And so, see, great minds think alike here, Chris, because we really were, and and it is something where, you know, we've talked about, you pick up on that, but, you know, I forget who it was that said, you you are the composite of the five people you spend the most time with. Well, you know, in, in especially for, you know, many people, the people they spend the most time with are the people they work with whether you choose to or not. I mean, you know, you're, you're in that environment. And so you're, if you're with these people who are negative and unhappy and just, you know, gloom and doom, it does rub off on you. Um, you know, and, and we've, we've seen that happen. And whether it's on social media, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, I tell businesses, let people post comments, you know, and, and, and of course businesses, well, what if they say something bad about me? Well, you know, if they say something bad, they're saying it anyway. And I tell them, you want to be part of that conversation because you want to fix it, you know, because if you don't, it feeds on itself. You know, if one person says something bad about, you know, the concert, the restaurant, the whatever, then two people jump in, then four people jump in, then, you know, and, and, and it just feeds on itself. But if you get in there and say, oh, my gosh, we are so sorry. Here's what we're going to do to fix this. Then the happy people come out of the woodwork and they say, oh, we love the concert. We love the restaurant. We love, you know, and and so then that feeds that happiness thing. Yeah, and I, and something when you were reading that, you know, portion of my book, you know, and it's kind of the wash, rinse, repeat. So, you know, if you look at that cycle, you know, where unhappiness is low productivity, and low productivity is bad for our companies. And then once our companies mm-hmm. aren't doing good, that can actually contribute to even more unhappiness because of the pressure that mm-hmm. that no profits or lack of profits or losing money right. creates. That is a cycle where a person or a group of people can start to spiral out of control a little bit. Spiraling out of control also doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And so, um, you know, it, one thing, and you said earlier, you know, we're not being poly in here. No, no, we're not saying that like everything's always going to be like super happy, fun ball time. You know, work is not always like that. There, right. there are great challenges facing the organizations that we work for. There are external forces. There is increasing regulation. The market shifts under our feet. There are competitors who 
would like us to go out of business. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing, but it's true. There's mm-hmm. so much going on externally, but then for us, that's just not quite enough. We also need to create all sorts of internal challenges that mm-hmm. often sap our energy and our time and our attention, where we barely have time to even worry about the external challenges. So we wonder where unhappiness at work comes from, and we wonder why companies with great ideas often go out of business is because they're too busy competing and fighting with each other inside instead of trying to, you know, face the the monsters of the outside world. Right. You know, and, and we've worked for companies like that. I'm guessing probably every one of us has worked in an environment where there was negativity, you know, and, and maybe it was that profits were down. Well, then, of course, when profits are down, sometimes you have to work longer hours. Well, you work longer hours and that causes problems. But, you know, profits are down. You don't get a raise. You don't get a bonus, you know, and, and all of these things. And it is it's that vicious cycle. Um, and that was what was so interesting about your book was the fact that, you know, and, and again, we won't give it away, but they did find a way to turn it around. Um, and and it was interesting as I was reading it, they came up with this happy work concept that they wanted their employees to sign. And and as I was reading that, I thought, Chris, how many companies have actually taken that and given it to their their employees and said, this is the way we want to run our business. You know, have you had companies who've said, hey, we we buy into this 110%, we're going to do this? I actually spoke at a company yesterday where, you know, they – the CEO was able to get an advanced copy of my book, and he loved it. And so I I actually had a chance to speak at their annual – uh, conference yesterday. I mean, small conference. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't don't get the wrong idea. It wasn't hundreds and hundreds of people, but it was really fun to spend an afternoon with them and you know speak to them about the book. And everyone had a copy of it, which was great. The company was able to provide copies to everyone. And I, you know, not only is hopefully the company encouraging them to read it, I told them flat out that I was there to inspire them to hopefully read the book, mm-hmm. but hopefully also to inspire them to work uh, together uh, as team members, you know, on a, on a great quest is what I told them, you know, the book has been out for, sheesh, I guess about three weeks now. So as far as companies reaching out and saying, we want to implement this happy work agreement or something very, very close to it after we make changes to it based on what, <laughs> which you could expect, but changes that oh, yeah. we want to make to it. Can you come help us? No, that has not happened yet. I do hope that that will happen. And I'd be, mm-hmm. I think I think that would be a fun time to sort of step into the shoes of right. a particular character named Sam in my book and go in and mm-hmm. see if I can help. But the book has, hasn't been out long enough, I think, to generate those opportunities yet. Right. Well, and, you know, it's, it was funny because as I was reading it, it wasn't so much that you wanted people to be happy. You know, even though the book is called Happy Work, in a lot of ways, to me, it was more about respect. You know, you had to respect yourself. You had to respect the people you were working with. Um, you know, and, and I mean, clearly the boss who threw things at me and called me names and called our vendors names and, and people like that, it, it, he he had a very low self-esteem. You know, he was, as I said, a very large man. And then that just carried over. And so because he didn't respect himself, he didn't respect the people he worked with and, and who worked for him. You know, and and. And I think that was – it was interesting. I interviewed someone else on my radio program a couple of weeks ago, Antoinette Klinkerman, who is – she she uh, has courtesy boot camp, and she works with businesses on their courtesy. You know, And, and she said one of the funniest things, and, and you, you hit this a little bit in your book, one of her most popular programs is, is the Workplace Kitchen. <laughs> really? And, 
and we all laugh about that because we think, really? But how many times have we been? And, you know, my, my workplace kitchen is very different from most because it's, it's my house. <laughs> but, you know, where, where you, know, you go in and, well, I'm not going to be the first person to make coffee. I'm not going to be the person who puts my cup in the dishwasher. I'm certainly not going to be the person who, who unloads the dishwasher. And then that whole thing just starts, as, as like we said, it starts building. It you know, the lack of respect for your workplace then gives you lack of respect for the people who put their cup in the, the thing and, and didn't wash it, you know, and, and all of those things. So to me, it is about respect also. Yeah, let me say, too, like when you bring up this point about, you know, dishes, uh, I, I'm not sure if you got all the way to the end of my book yet. but I did. So, you know, I actually talk about that in the book uh, mm-hmm. towards the back. It's out of the 46 commitments that are in this so-called work code of conduct called the happy work agreement, yep. there's one called 46 where uh, I should, shouldn't short sell it and call it a catch-all, but it's this, this last commitment offers all sorts of these little ideas. You mm-hmm. know, it's like pass along a business lead when you can. Thanks Bob Berg for that one. Um, mm-hmm. Compliment a workmate on a job well done. And if, if an employee's child is sick, send that parent home. Definitely the dishes thing you just mentioned, you know, and you may have some listeners who, who just don't have time for these little contrivances. I mean, they're right. running big companies, and this stuff mm-hmm. just sounds dumb to them. And I'm, I'm just going to say, I don't think it's dumb. I, mm-hmm. You know, all of these little things add up. And the the analogy I use in the book is like plaque on teeth. So, right. you know, we brush our teeth every day, twice a day. Hopefully, maybe some of us are adventurous enough to actually floss. And so. <laughs> We're trying to take care of our teeth, but you're looking at it, your teeth, and you're thinking, okay, like, is, do I have a piece of spinach in them or whatever? And so that's the stuff you can see. And what you really can't see super well is plaque forming. And no matter how hard I brush and how hard I try, every six months I end up going to the dentist, and they jack me up in that chair, and that crazy tool. Well, they get that pick that thing. That crazy tool. It's actually <laughs> called an explorer. Every time I say that, uh-huh. I think of Dora. So right. they start scraping, and I'm like, oh, another six months of failed brushing like how could I have avoided this and it's funny I'm not even sure you can so negativity at work and in our lives can collect like that and so it you know I I've been saying in some of the speeches I give like I say the little things matter now I preface that by saying the big things really 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 matter I don't Mm -hmm. want to have things thrown at me at work I don't want to be fired because my skin is the wrong color or because I'm a woman. I'm not interested in being sexually harassed. All those things are terrible, and they make for nightmare job scenarios. But I also – I don't want you to burn microwave popcorn either, you know, mm-hmm. because that ruins the smell of the entire office. And I so regret not having that one line in the book. In the back, it should have said, please don't burn your microwave popcorn. <laughs> Because could just to add a little humor to the book, obviously, it would have right. been great. So hopefully second edition will let me slip that in. But all that mm-hmm. little stuff really matters, you know, like staying late and helping a colleague in need or just like remembering people's birthdays, you know, right. uh, sending sick employees home and not making them feel guilty, you know, surprising people like once a year by sending them home early. It's just like little stuff, but like it all adds up. The little good things can add up and unfortunately all the little bad things can add up too. So your best bet to create a respectful workplace where you're not worrying about Sally and this sneer that she shot you yesterday, you're worrying about completing the project that's going to put your company at the top of the ladder. That's what you should be worried about. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's so true that that you know the the little things add up and the the bad things add up. You know, the the good and the bad. And 
you know, it's it, but we tend to remember the bad things. And so it's almost like you have to do twice as many good things. And, you know, it's, it's funny, when I lived in Denver, I was a member of the, the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce, and we had a speaker one time who her business was to go in and help businesses be happy. And she would teach them how to play games and, and things like that. And she could show how their productivity went up. And, and uh, you know, but it was, I remember, and, and I remember because I still have this, and this was years ago that, that I did this. She said, you have to start your day off right. And so we all got these little creatures. They were little plastic things. Mine is, is like a little duck. So it's this little plastic duck. And it's got this stupid little smile on its little face. And you you look at this little duck and you have to smile. I mean, it's just one of those things. And she said, put it in your shower. So that way, one of the very first things that you see every day will make you smile. Um, you know, and, and other people, it's, you know, they, they see their kids and they smile. You know, they see their, their dog, their cat, they, you know, their spouse and they smile. And she said, start like that. If you start your day smiling, it's much easier to get through the day smiling. And, you know, and, but she, she was very big proponent, obviously. I mean, it was her business, but on the fact that businesses have to have fun. And, and she said, it doesn't matter it, what type of business it is. It could be a business that, you know, like a hospital. I mean, you, you can't go through life at a hospital smiling and laughing, but there are appropriate places where you can. Um, you know, you can go to the break room. You can still have fun. You can have somebody's birthday cake. You know, all of those things, they help make the bad times better. True. And like you said, you know, if you're, if you're a hospital worker and you're laughing all the time, <laughs> They might pull, They're going to check they, the drug they cart. They might pull aside to <laughs> yeah, what you've been sniffing. But, um, uh-huh. but no, you said it again when you mentioned the, the negativity, the bad things, and how we remember those things. It, that has always fascinated me, how like I have a horrible long-term memory. Like I went to high school with a guy who can remember the names of everyone we went to high school with. And I'm like, man, that was so long ago. How are you remembering all this? Like I don't remember any of their names hardly. Like I look at it. I look at a yearbook and like some, I don't even remember some of their faces, you know, so I have this terrible memory, but like, oh, how I remember the first time that when I was working at the public accounting firm back in the 90s, and I specifically remember some of the initial feedback I got on my work, and I remember exactly how that man said it to me, and I remember he was very negative, right. you know, and he was correcting some of my work, and then he wrote a review note on my audit work papers that said, you know, don't you remember when we talked about this? You know, and I'm thinking, hey, stupid, of course I don't remember. Like, I wouldn't have done it this way if I had remembered. So, yeah, like, I didn't I, mean to yeah, do so it. I failed you, Your Highness. I didn't remember mm-hmm. our, like, super amazing talk, you know. It, but it's just, like, the way he said it in his little written note, like, it just changed the way I think about him forever. And so mm-hmm. your listeners might be thinking, hey, Chris, put on your big boy pants and, like, get over this. And I'm just going to say, you know, good point. I maybe should have. Uh, but th- that was actually indicative of how he was as a person overall. So right. I cannot tell a lie that he he was what he was like. But these things, they're like super glue memories. You know, they just attach mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, I liken it to, you know, when, when enough negative things happen, I feel like it's operating software that you're loading into your head, but it's like junk code, you know. Right. And it's like it's really hard to erase that stuff or replace it with better code. It's just not easy. And so my 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 advice to people is to try to avoid allowing that code to get loaded up. And I will say it was a point that I didn't quite make all the way a few minutes ago. But again, we're not saying that tough times won't happen at work. 
it doesn't mean that like you and me, Deb, can't be working in a company and have a disagreement on direction. But we can sit down and we can have some of our colleagues sit around and we can have all the decision makers at a table, you know, and we can cater in some food. And we can close the doors and we can disagree with each other until we find a way forward that we can all support or that at least that we know that we should go ahead and support. And we can do that without being disagreeable. So we can right. disagree without being disagreeable. And mm -hmm. that's what's missing from a lot of companies. And that's what's missing from a lot of the human interaction that we, uh, that, that we get ourselves involved in. Mm -hmm. Well, and when we disagree, there's definitely appropriate ways to do that. You know, in the book, you initially start with they yell at each other in front of everybody else. And then when they come to this agreement to really respect each other, it's, yes, we're going to disagree, but we'll do it behind closed doors. This is not something that, that goes in front of everybody. And, you know, I, that's so important, too, because we do disagree. And there are times where people need to be disciplined and they need to, you know, have these various things happen. But take it behind closed doors. You know, it, don't embarrass somebody. You know, I think we all remember back when, you know, it, in particular, maybe when we were in sports or band or, you know, something, you know, you, you, you know your eighth grade reading class or whatever. And the coach, the teacher called you out in front of everybody else. That was absolutely mortifying. Um, you know, and, and, and now I'll grant you, there are people who live to do that. You know, they, they think that embarrassing somebody makes their day. Well, you know what? Forget those people. But if you have the chance, don't do it in front of people. You know, if you're not happy with the service that you get at a restaurant, please don't post it on Facebook, you know, <laughs> unless there's a way that you can fix it. I love that. You know, maybe, you. you know, and, and I'm clapping, you know, I'm clapping right now. Yeah. Yay. You know, because things happen, you know, what? and, and so don't go onto the web now, you know, granted there might be, there might be reasons why you want to do that, but always have, and, and you talk about this in your book and, and it was funny because Antoinette and I talked about it too, have a solution or a suggestion. You know, so maybe you can, you're posting that, you know, this, uh, the service was very slow. You know, maybe you sat there watching and you thought, okay, well, how could I do this differently? So you approach it from the, the, the perspective of here's a suggestion that I would like to make. Now, you know, may, they may take it, they may not, they may call you names, but you know, it, it, keep it behind closed doors if you can keep it behind closed doors. And that I think is one of the big problems that we have created with social media and in particular Facebook and, and Twitter also, um, you know, is the fact that that we think that we're protected by that screen. And so we can say whatever we want yeah. because they can't come back. And, and in many cases, they can't. Um, I was following the story that was happening uh, that ESPN was talking about where Kurt Schilling, the baseball player, had posted a tweet about his daughter, who is a pitcher um, and she's going to college and she's going to be pitching. And people posted some of the absolute most horrific comments about his daughter. I mean, they actually threatened physical violence and they didn't like him as a baseball player. So they took it out on his daughter. Well, he's going, it, the, the full force of the law is going after those people. I mean, they threaten physical violence and, you know, but I'm sure they thought, well, they'll never find me. What? Holy cow, some of those people use their own names as their Twitter names. How, you know, yeah. that's I, I I think Paul Harvey, if he were still alive, would he would just his cup would runneth over with stupid criminal stories. So true. Um, well, that Yankee story or that or that Kurt Schilling story is really interesting. Uh, I have a few things to say. So, you know, yeah, people were posting just absolutely awful things, you know, and 
one thing that happens is that the general public, let's call them the unfamous everyday general public, thinks mm-hmm. that people like Kurt Schilling, like it's their obligation to put up with such things. Like, right. So what they'll say is like, you put yourself in the public eye and mm-hmm. you tweeted this. So that actually gives us the right to do what we want. It's kind of like mm-hmm. they're the Washington Bullets, who are now the Washington Wizards. I think it was the Washington Bullets. In the NBA, they used to have a season ticket holder who had tickets right behind the visitor's bench. And he right. stood there all game and yelled things at that bench. And I just thought, you know, and so that's that whole thing where it's like, hey, I bought a ticket. You know, it's free speech. I can say whatever I want. Yeah. And like, you know, I just I'm just not sure I'm cool with that. And I think that, you know, eventually I think that they were able to get him to shut up or they moved his tickets or something. You know, what happened with Kurt Schilling was interesting. You know, he went ahead and took those very public tweets and alerted several of the people's employers including one of them who was a ticket seller for the Yankees. Mm -hmm. And so the Yankees got rid of him. Well, here's something that's really interesting. People stepped forward to give Kurt Schilling more crap, and they said Mm -hmm. things to the effect of, hey, thanks for getting that guy fired. You know, at at this point, we are just going to have to agree to disagree here because Mm -hmm. he did not get those people fired. This is just two different ways to look at the world, the victim. They got themselves fired. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we sound like geniuses for saying that, but quite honestly – like, how else do you – like, what do we want from these people, you know? And it's quite similar, too. There's a little bit of a connection to uh, the, the the notion or the idea you gave at the restaurant. I have a lot of friends in the restaurant business, and there is nothing more frustrating for the good restaurant tours who are trying to cater amazing experiences for people to have someone go on social media and basically release some endorphins by telling – just the world, how awful things were. Right. And they don't recognize the people. They don't recognize their name or their face. Do you know what that means? That means that they didn't take their problem to the mater D or to the manager. They want to know what's going on with their business. That's one great reason to be. They want to make yeah, it better. That's actually one great reason to be on social media, too, is to hear that feedback because every mm-hmm. time someone has a bad experience, it's theoretically an opportunity to make things better. And Gary Vaynerchuk said that for, for many, many years. But like as a restaurant, you know, you can be you can make or break it, you know, your whole restaurant's life by just a couple of shoddy reviews. And like people, you know, Yelp is unfortunately not such a great example of this where, you know, people put stuff up on Yelp and then, you know, Yelp gets once you interested in advertising and all of a sudden some of those bad things can start disappearing a little bit. I hate to say it, but those things are probably are happening. And so you know, I, I just – that's the one part about social media. I love the openness of it. I like the fact that I can tweet at Kurt Schilling and say, hey, I support you, you know, mm-hmm. and I like the fact that he's punching back, frankly. It's just – Right. You know, and I don't like Kurt Schilling. I'm a, Cubs, I'm a Cardinals fan. I don't like the Red Sox. <laughs> like, he, they beat us in the World Series, but right, he, right. him and his daughter don't deserve this. It's just terrible. Right. Well, you know, when when I was back in Colorado, I was uh, involved with University of Colorado with the athletic department, and we had a football coach who had his son as the quarterback. Now, you know, that's just kind of a recipe for disaster. And his, but his son was the nicest, sweetest kid in the world. And I remember the coach telling me that on Cody's Facebook page, he got death threats. I mean, come on, that's just terrible. I mean, well. What is, what is this world coming to? What's wrong with people? You know, and, and I remember I was talking to a fan, and, and I mean, these are college. Cody was 18, 19 years old. And this gentleman was telling me, you know, some pretty vile, nasty things. And I said, stop right there. Do you have a daughter that age? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, what if somebody said that about your child? 
And he looked at me and that light bulb actually kind of went on. And he said, I never thought of it that way. Now, you know, fortunately, he got it. A lot of times they don't. But, you know, it, it is something where, you know, we it's like we said, you know, there's that filter. We think we can say whatever we want. And we say, whoa, free speech and yada, yada, yada. Um, but we forget that it's it is a person that's at the other end who's going to read that. It's not the business. It's a person. It's somebody who put their lifeblood into that business yeah. or into that sport or whatever. You know, you talk in the the book about these are people who were somebody's little sons and little daughters and they have special people to them. And you know, and why do we want to tear them down? Yeah, and so part of the book is where I talk about like perhaps the reasons why we don't get along at work or the reasons mm-hmm. why our differences truly are wedges that we place between ourselves or that, as I say in the book, are surreptitiously placed uh, between us for, on, for us, uh, mm-hmm. is that we, we often don't have, we don't have the perspective that our fellow employees have. And so right. you just said it. So, you know, uh, your listeners have probably heard of Ray Rice. He was the running back for the Baltimore Ravens who had been yes. suspended for two. Had, had the rather unfortunate incident in the elevator. Yes, he punched <laughs> his girlfriend, now his wife, uh, and so if I told you, Deb, that uh, an NFL player with the requisite strength of an NFL player had struck a woman and had knocked her off her feet on an elevator, your response would have been, oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. Yes, uh, he should be arrested. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Now, mm-hmm. when the video came out showing him brutally cold cocking her and knocking oh. her out to where half of her body was actually in the elevator and half was out of the elevator and she wasn't mm-hmm. moving. Oh, at that point we had seen enough like this cannot right. stand. But Deb is the same thing that happened. I just used some rather weak language to explain mm-hmm. to you and to the NFL probably heard the same thing. Why did it take the perspective of actually seeing it with our own eyes? Mm-hmm. Right. That's ridiculous. That doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. You know, like I've been, I, I've road raged one time in my life. There were these people in front of me, and they were just driving slow. I must have had some place to get. I couldn't <laughs> take it anymore. They were so annoying, swerving a little bit here and there, and I thought, oh, maybe they're drinking or whatever. Hit the gas, pull up next to them. It was two nuns. <gasps> but I just thought, like, I'm not even sure why it matters that they were two nuns instead of, like, two guys does. that were, like, with mm-hmm. tattoos. But I just – I felt bad, and I just thought to myself, get a hold of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. this is not a proper way to, to deal with two such people. Or any such people. That was kind of right. like the lesson that I taught myself that day. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we don't take the perspective of our coworkers, we'll often demand – I don't want to say too much of them, but you know, I, this thought occurred to me. You know, If you work at a company and there's an employee who has a terminally ill child you know, at home that they're dealing with, right. please just expect their performance to dip just mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, they're going to be a little sidetracked. It, it just, and so that's just one example of what I'm talking about when I say, you know, sort of take the perspective of, of your coworkers. And I mentioned right. in the book, I say that, you know, think of it, when you, when you join a business, you are getting adopted, basically, into a super bizarre family, okay? And all of those people are nothing more than grown-up kids. We know we, mm-hmm. we learn most of the lessons we learn, and all, much of the operating software in our head was loaded up at a very early age. So at this point now, we're working with nothing more than grown-up kids, and we get adopted into this super weird family full of different kinds of people. 
and then uh, immediately we're expected to perform, you know, at, in a top-notch way with all of these people who are totally not like us. And what's funny is most colleges and universities do not have classes that train us for this stuff. There are some that deal with like there's organizational management classes, but a lot of kids don't take those classes. And so the training that we get involves all of the tactical stuff we're going to need to do, but we rarely get we're rarely prepared to deal with the human element of working right. with people. It's funny, the ones that are are the sports. You know, they're, huh. they're taught how to be on the team. And, and I, you know, in sports, I'm not meaning the, the individual sports like track and field, but I'm talking about volleyball, basketball, football. You're taught how to be part of that team, um, which is, it, it is kind of counterintuitive that that's where, in many cases, people do learn to be part of that team. Interesting point. Very interesting point. You know, and... and it's it's interesting. I saw in your book one of the, the people that, that you admire is Peter Shankman. Um, and I've heard him speak, and I actually had him as a guest on my program one time. And one of his comments to me was that, you know, people in, in a lot of cases, we almost expect negative, you know, and, and we're kind of like you were surprised almost at McDonald's when you had the positive. He said that he, when he is thinking about working with people, he watches how they interact with, I don't want to say subservient, but the people who are maybe assisting them. So whether it's the admin's assistant or the person at the drive-through or, you know, the, the, the waiter, the waitress, the, you know, the front desk at the clerk at the, the hotel, how do people interact with them? Are they nice to them? Are they polite? Do they say please, thank you? Or are they rude and really thinking, hey, they're subservient to me. I don't have to be nice to them. And that it it really made an impression on me. You know, it it doesn't matter how bad a day I'm having. I tell them please. I tell them thank you. And and it's interesting because I've picked up on that where if somebody is rude, you know, now I do okay, if they, if they've been having a bad day or something, I you know, I try and take that into account, but it's like, really? If that's how they treat that person, then how are they going to treat other people and how are they ultimately going to treat me? Yeah, and I'm I'm glad to hear Peter was a guest on your show. He's one of the smartest and craziest people I think that, that, that I know and <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you'll see his name at the top of my book on, on on the front of the book you know he was the first person who had agreed to endorse my book and so wow uh, we obviously I felt the same way you know and uh, you know I was able to secure some other endorsements but you know nothing was going to knock Peter's name off the top of my book and it's just because mm-hmm. of the way he treated me you know mm-hmm. at a time where he probably didn't even realize it but it was definitely a time of need for me where you know, I started out with zero endorsements. I'm like, okay, who are we going to get here? Um, you know, and I sort of built out a little system where I figured, well, okay, if I get if I get Chris Brogan and Ted Rubin, I might be able to get Seth Godin. That didn't quite turn out as planned, but uh, I but you know, I was able to get some really good people. But Peter was the first, you know, and it was just he treated me with respect and you know, uh, you know, jumped on a call with me to just discuss various aspects of, of the book, and you know, uh, he's. You know, I don't know if you've read his latest book, Zombie Loyalist. I can definitely recommend it. He, uh, I mean, definitely a great book. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of a zombie loyalist for him now. The book is basically, you know, creating rabid fans, you know, that, mm-hmm. that w- won't think of leaving y- your side. And so, you know, Peter did it to me. You know, like I'll mm-hmm. run through a brick wall for him now because right. so he asked me for something and I'll, he's, he's like, I need a review. Like, and mm-hmm. so I, re- I read the book and post a, post a review for them. It's just, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, to, to translate that to the workplace, I often feel the most affinity for people who treat me well, who mm-hmm. lend me a hand when I'm down, 
who praise me, sometimes publicly, and if there's any criticizing to be done, they'll do it privately. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and I say that in the book, praise publicly and criticize privately. You know, you'll have some employees who are like, they're so shy. They don't want to be praised publicly. Oh, forget it. Yes, they do. Everyone, yes, they do. People, mm-hmm. people want that. And if, you, if, you're, if you're supervising people out there and uh, Deb Creerland, if you're listening to this, yes, they do want to be praised. If you don't praise them or if you accidentally give praise to the wrong person or you take credit for the work of them, you, you're <sighs> definitely damaging your workplace. And if mm-hmm. you're not giving them proper praise, they're not necessarily going to be able to feel that sense of significance that they'll feel all by themselves to have someone right. else say, hey, good job, even mm-hmm. though it is your job to do mm-hmm. it, to thank someone and tell them job well done. Those things right. matter. And, and there's certainly ways to do it. You know, if you've got the employee who is just the most shy person in the world, well, then don't make a huge spectacle. True. But, you know, thank them. And, and again, publicly, you know, maybe they're in the, the lunchroom. They're having, you know, they're getting a cup of coffee. You walk in, there's, you know, two or three other people in there, and you just say, hey, Chris, great job. Yeah, or like, you know, sometimes companies have meetings as much as I dislike meetings. Um, you know, <laughs> do, you know, people have meetings. You know, some companies have like what they call a stand-up meeting every day where it's mm-hmm. like they, you know, it's like five minutes of just standing around saying what's going to happen for the day. It's a perfect opportunity to just say, hey, I, th- I want to thank all of you guys. Right. Today I want to especially thank you for the contribution. You stay late and everyone's staying late, you know, but to just thank people every once in a while for a job well done, it really does add up. Those good things mm-hmm. add up too. And then when you have bad things, it's not quite so tragic. You know, that's that's kind of been my philosophy. And, and what I've seen is, you know, the world doesn't come to an end when you've done that, because, you know, I it's it, when you've had it's kind of like you've built a bank and your bank has, has had that good stuff in it. So then when there's some bad things, OK, well, you know, you it kind of balances. Certainly so. I mean, and that's, you know. Obviously, in all human relationships, they, um, it, it's great to spend really happy, productive time together, but you can mm-hmm. rest assured that you're going to face challenges um, in your life, whether it be personal or professional. And so it's definitely good to create you know, a really strong network of people who believe in you. Um, mm-hmm. If that's family, that means to you know, marry the right person or just have the right group of friends around you because times will get tough. And and again, just to re-stress, you know, that I don't want people to lose sight or not give this book a chance because they think it's like mushy or motivational. You know, there's definitely a lot of tactical stuff uh, right. in this book, Happy Work. And also, um, you know, it, it, we're not just talking about like touchy feely stuff, you know, we, we do need to understand that we're all in this together. And I think that was mm-hmm. one of the main points that I was trying to make in the book is that, you know, when we, when we get adopted into this super bizarre family, like I, I'd like us to just consider it as time spent where we're not just there for the paycheck, you know, right. and if we can find a way to create more businesses like that, we'll be sending, I think our country and our world in the right direction. Right. You know, and, and maybe, you know, as as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, somebody might read, well, I'm, I don't manage people. Well, you know what? Are you in charge of a volunteer committee? You know, there's a lot of other ways where what you have is great information and, and is very applicable in other situations. Yes. And let me say this, too, that, you know, we've talked a lot about how like owners and management and entrepreneurs, you know, run their organizations and how they treat people. This book doesn't take sides, though. So I right. have a lot of advice for those types of leaders, but 
frankly, I also have advice for entry level and middle management people. You, their contribution is just as important as the top. Mm-hmm. Now we need leaders right. striking a tone, and we need leaders with vision. You know, all those hackneyed phrases—they're they're not hackneyed. It's true. We really need those things. But we also need your contribution, entry level, middle management person. And please understand, if your boss is a human being and can treat you in a way that will adversely affect your day, you can be darn sure that you can do the same thing to them. You know what can flow uphill too. And that's the honest to goodness truth. And I I mean, Mm -hmm. I have felt that as a supervisor. And the people working for me probably felt the same way that these knuckleheads felt about Kurt Schilling. It's like, well, they got the job. You know, this is just part of the job. You Mm -hmm. should be able to handle it. You get paid so much more. And it's just not so. That's not how we work as human beings. So even the most powerful, well-connected, famous entrepreneur, president of the company, human beings have feelings too. And we, we can make their day better or worse as we work for them. Right. You know, and, and in your book, you've got a great quote. And we've, you know, m- most of us have heard it from Maya Angelou, that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. You know, and, and so I want to close with that thought because, you know, you can make people feel good. You can make them feel bad. And, you know, and, and so really think about that, whether it's your employees, your spouse, your children, the person at the McDonald's drive through You know, how are you leaving them with, with how they feel? So, Chris, before we end, though, you have to tell people how you, they can find your book and then how they can connect with you online. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to do so. So on Twitter, which is probably a place where I spend an awful lot of time, you can find me at Chris Reimer, R-E-I-M-E-R. If you're interested in learning more about the book, please proceed to happyworkbook.com. Don't forget the word book in there. Some other knucklehead owns happywork.com. So happyworkbook.com. Great. Well, you and we didn't even really talk about social media, and you have won some great awards for social media, which just means that we have to have you back on so that we can talk about social media. Part two coming soon. Yes, coming soon, coming soon. Well, Chris, thank you so much. And I, I admit now I won't give this away. I was wondering through the book who that one character was. And I guessed, and I guessed right. But I couldn't wait to, to find out if I was, if I was correct on it. Um, but it, it really was a fabulous book. I had a, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a fairly quick read. And, but I, I did get so much out of it. Even though I work from home, I was thinking, you know, in a volunteer position, you know, all of these various things, these are things that I need to be carrying through in my life. Well, I'm glad to hear. And I just want to thank you for having me on. And listeners, thanks for listening. Great. Well, and to everyone else, thank you for being our listeners. Thanks for connecting with us online. And until next time, have a fabulous day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.